you've got all these politicians that are essentially in this Skinner box where they're responding to the incentives of social media. Clearly, there's something wrong with the idea that uh, privately held platforms can become so publicly important, and yet there are no fail-safes. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week our guest is research scientist and adjunct professor Justin Hendricks, who is the CEO and editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media community dedicated to exploring the intersection of technology and democracy. In this episode, Justin and I enjoy a wide tour through a variety of topics including political polarization, social media as a public square, social media as a public utility, the economic possibilities of universal basic income, and a whole lot more. Justin brings a rich collection of knowledge that he put forth in this conversation with a calm clarity that I truly appreciated, and I hope you'll feel the same. So everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Justin Hendricks. Cool, man. Well, I think the uh, the best place, most obvious place probably to start with you then is with tech policy press um obviously something that you spend a lot of your energy on so maybe to start you could just tell us what the inspiration and motivation were behind starting this nonprofit. sure um tech policy press started as a kind of side hustle um, my co-founder brian jones and i were running a blog uh, under the name protego press this is now a few years ago looking at similar issues as Tech Policy Press's current editorial remit. Um, and in the midst of the pandemic in 2020, I decided I would like to take a go at uh, trying to make this side hustle my you know, particular focus. And so we essentially set up Tech Policy Press as a 501c3 and, and set out to kind of create a, a prototype of a media and community site that would gather ideas from across a wide range of disciplines um, at the intersection of concerns around tech and democracy, tech and society. Um, so I've been up to that now for two years. Nice. And when I think of that intersection that you're talking about there between technology and democracy, I can't help but kind of think of people like the early tech optimist of the 90s, like Douglas Rushkoff, and their kind of hopes that this new technology would unlock empathy and free expression and we'd see an empowerment of our our government and all of these things and then i think a lot of people would say around 2012 2016 this maybe went the completely opposite direction where do you stand now in terms of how you feel this technology slash democracy relationship has unfolded it's interesting you bring up doug rushkoff um, i've actually been teaching with Doug Rushkoff um, for the last uh, few years um, in a course called Tech, Media, and Democracy that brings together faculty from across multiple uh, campuses in New York at NYU, Cornell Tech, the New School, um, uh, Columbia, as well as uh, Queens College, where, where Doug is a professor. And um, of course, he's you know taught me a lot. I've learned a lot from working with him and uh, from reading his work. Um, and that class, which, you know, was 
really at the root of the inspiration for me uh, in, in getting involved in these issues and launching Tech Policy Press um, you know, was meant to kind of look at this relationship almost from the perspective of, you know, is this a crisis? Um, is this a crisis moment? Are we seeing, you know, um, externalities and problems that are emerging um, that, that may, you know, truly pose a, a kind of existential threat to democracy? And I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, part of the reason for that were the types of concerns that uh, came along uh, at the outset of the Trump administration. Uh, many of the concerns around social media and disinformation, which of course became um, very prominent in those those moments thereafter, uh, things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, and then of course the ramp up of of regulation um, in Europe, uh, in particular and lots of discussion about potential regulation, uh, perhaps here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, so as far as where we're at on that continuum between uh, perhaps optimism and pessimism, um, I think we're still in a, a slightly uh, difficult place where um, some of the maybe more market-driven uh, aspects of that optimism are still very much at play. Um, and we, in at least in this country, uh, do not yet have uh, any sufficient kind of plan um, for what we would like a tech policy to look like in this country. Um, we don't have things like comprehensive privacy regulation. We don't have anything, of course, as uh, uh, comprehensive around social media as the Digital Services Act in the EU. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, a kind of comprehensive AI policy, although there has been some movement in that direction. Um, so there's there's still a long way to go. Um, and on some level, we're still operating with the same rules as we had in that 90s period or 90s or early aughts period, uh, even though we've learned, you know, quite a lot since then. Well, and speaking of maybe running by outdated rules, you know, is is the American government or any modern government that's kind of founded on a several hundred or thousand year old constitution, is it ready to adapt to the changes that technology is bringing down the line? Like, can is there something maybe unique about the American government that has caused it to maybe lag behind these other countries? Or is every country just kind of in the same boat because they're not really made for this kind of paradigm? You know, we could probably spend our entire hour on this question, um, and I'd probably veer into some areas that I don't know enough about. Uh, but I, I do think that what we're seeing right now in the United States, at least, is a kind of urgency from both parties around different issues. Um, they both have big tech in their crosshairs, but for different reasons. Um, I think a lot of people were very disappointed that what appeared to be a kind of bipartisan consensus on antitrust and uh, you know issues around competition um, didn't produce much more than a you know merger filing fee modernization uh, out of the last Congress, and there's little hope that a lot is planning to come out of this Congress, um, even on topics where it appears there's some consensus across both parties. You know, maybe around things like child safety. Um, or even privacy, for that matter, um, where the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, you know, of course, passed um, with bipartisan support um, out of committee. Um, 
I think there's something going on that that some folks have suggested, you know, really has to do with just the kind of breakdown between the two parties, the ability to find consensus, um, and the fact that, at least on some level, it's good business for politicians to say they want to do something about tech um, and to continue to fundraise on it and continue to kind of you know, call out uh, the the injustices, whatever those injustices might be from their perspective, um, and perhaps less good business to necessarily solve anything. Yeah, well, you touch on something there that I think is really important, which is that the, the polarization. And I feel like a central feature of pretty much any social institution, especially as it relates to government or politics, uh, is a degree of, of trust in some common narrative or common common purpose. And we, we often talk about how much the parties are divided um, into their own little subjective reality tunnels. But, you know, we're, we're fragmented into our own little worlds of, uh, on social media as the masses who are voting. But I can't help but think so are the politicians, right? They're, they're also in their own fragmented tribe of subjectivity. H how do you think, I guess, social media is impacting our ability to really push forward <laughs> in, mm -hmm. in the government, um, but re whether from the masses uh, changing the zeitgeist because they're too busy fighting each other or the politicians not actually pushing policy forward because they're too busy fighting each other. I uh, helped to write a report last year on uh, social media and political polarization with Paul Barrett at the NYU uh, Center for uh, business and human rights. And we talked about some of these issues in that report, uh, in particular, uh, looking at polarization's effect on uh, you know, the legislative process in the U.S. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions here about the fact that you've got all these politicians that are essentially in this Skinner box now, you know, they're in this like game um, where they're responding to the incentives of social media. Um, and other players in the game are also responding to the incentives of social media. So, you know, whether it's media and journalists, uh, people in civil society, you know, voters themselves, um, everybody is kind of vying uh, for attention uh, in this mechanism. And, you know, research that we have on this, uh, computational social science research, as well as, you know, internal documents we've seen from places like Facebook, uh, you know, it appears that those incentives are very powerful um, and they're affecting the behavior, not only of politicians, uh, but also, you know, clearly of, of media entities and, and the like, and driving them, of course, to more extreme uh, polls, essentially. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think that was most concerning about the Facebook uh, leaks from Francis uh, Hogan was essentially that, that, you know, politicians were embracing and pursuing more extreme uh, agendas essentially to be certain, be certain that they would get better reach across uh, social media or across Facebook in particular. And so, you know, just think about that dynamic kind of reflexively operating for years and years and years. And that's where we're at, right? Um, I'm not saying, and nor did the report say that social media is the sole cause of polarization. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this country or any other, uh, or the sole cause of the reason that legislators aren't getting along terribly well. There are other reasons, but it does appear to be making things worse. Yeah, I, I, I can't say I've never thought about this before, but it's kind of striking me as profound as you say this now that 
you know, these politicians are equally as um, maybe addicted to these tools as the average person are, and maybe therefore don't have the the incentive to actually change it. You know, you, it's hard to cut an addict off of their drug. And if you're a politician, why would you cut your supply? I can't remember the exact hearing, but there's this one a particular moment where uh, a camera caught uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, um, you know, asking a fiery set of questions and then immediately going on Twitter to see what the response mm. uh, is in real time. Right. Um, so, you know, that to me, like kind of really was a sort of like poignant little moment that, that shows exactly where we're at, um, that people are not only very aware of how they're performing in front of the mm -hmm. social media, you know, audience, as it were, but they're quite literally looking for that feedback and looking for those signals instantly. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think of the idea of the public square, you know, the historic public square, where we might come together where we might have those those fiery revolutions take place and we socialize and we decide to change the zeitgeist of a generation. And that's now all mediated by a screen and by algorithms that are shaping what people see. How do you think that that's impacting the conversation? You know, we're not really out doing that in-person dynamic anymore. Is that changing the way our, our democracy is really functioning at this point? You know, one of the uh, books I always think about when I encounter a question like this one mm -hmm. um, is from Jose uh, Marichal, who's a professor out at uh, uh, California Lutheran, um, who wrote about uh, Facebook and democracy all the way back in 2012. Um, so he was kind of, you know, perhaps early to uh, this conversation. And, you know, he makes the point that, you know, you've literally got these mechanisms that are that are somewhat replacing or standing in for uh, democratic functions, or certainly uh, democratic uh, investment, time and, and effort that individuals used to put into, you know, the other mechanisms. So, you know, it's common now, for instance, for maybe neighbors to fight over some civic issue in a Facebook group, uh, but never to attend a community board meeting, right? Um, so there's a big question, I think that, and I think that, by the way, that, um, is a reality at, at various levels, not just at the local level. Uh, but there are a lot of questions there about, you know, where is the legitimate democratic discourse? Um, is it on Twitter? You know, uh, is it somehow on TikTok? Is it uh, all of those places? Is it at the community board meeting? Um, and that's part of what's going on here is there's almost a kind of challenge uh, to government. Uh, you know, there's this other place now where it seems like um, these things are going to be debated um, and the sort of weight of the the masses you know kind of conclusion on some matter should matter um, mm -hmm. and the system's not really set up that way right right well not to not to compel you to opine too much after our, our previous discussion about giving too many opinions uh, prior to the chat but do you think we're engaging in some golden age thinking here, thinking that it should remain an in-person experience, that we should be attending these community meetings and that we need to maybe get on board with the technological version, or maybe is there something truly lost that in order for the human animal to function well, we need to stay in that in-person dynamic? You know, I think this is a, 
a really good question and pre pretty much the golden question, you know, um, to some extent, do our democratic systems um, very much need to evolve and, and be updated for the digital age? Um, I think most people would say, yes, there, there does appear to be something wrong um, with the way that government operates uh, in this age that's sort of out of step with uh, the way that most people are engaging with one another uh, and with, with political information, uh, for that matter. Um, and yet, you know, what is the thing that should happen? I think there's not a good discourse around that. That's one of the things I hope to talk about um, on Tech Policy Press uh, in the years ahead. You know, I think it is a multi-year, maybe even multi-decade conversation we've got to have. Um, I remember uh, some comments from Gideon Litchfield, who's now uh, the editor-in-chief of Wired, uh, along these lines, um, where he said something to the fact, and I don't want to put words in his mouth. So for some reason, getting, if you listen to this, I apologize, but, um, you know, essentially that, that we may need to think about the technology of democracy, uh, which if you think about it, that's what democracy is. It's a kind of technology for coming to consensus. Um, it was a technology that we developed perhaps in the age of, uh, horses, uh, and, you know, carrier pigeons or what have you. Um, and very early ways that information would would spread. And we would, of course, need agents that we would essentially empower to go and represent us in certain contexts. Um, and all of that does, to some extent, seem, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, a bit a bit old fashioned at this point. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, for the most part, that's what we've got. Right. That is the legal uh, structure that is in place in most of the world's democracies. And we've got. Uh, a rule of law uh, that demands that things function that way. So how do we square those things? Um, you know, some people think we can't, right? That we need to figure out ways to suborn these major platforms more effectively to democracy. Um, and there are others who would much more rather us move to some model that looks more like the digital realm, uh, perhaps empowers people uh, in, in a more direct way uh, on on digital platforms. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of platforms, and you mentioned Musk and uh, well, Twitter, <laughs> I guess more specifically earlier, and it's got me thinking. You know, while Twitter and Musk is an interesting topic, I think a more interesting discussion that you're alluding to here is the idea that maybe these platforms could or should, in some way, be brought in as public utilities or have some increased regulation brought into them. Is that something that you agree with? Do you think that that's something that we should do? Is it still just a big question mark? I think it's a big question mark. Um, you know, the clearly there's something wrong um, with the idea that uh, privately held platforms can become so publicly important and yet there are no fail safes, right? Um, you think about Twitter and you think about uh, all of the uses that governments have for it to inform citizens, uh, everything from, you know, earthquake alerts to whether alternate side parking is on or off here in New York City. You know, these are things that I might get via Twitter. Uh, and yet I'm totally at the whim now of, of Elon Musk and, you know, whether the thing's going to operate from one day to the next. Um, and you might look at that and say, well, you know, government should never have relied on these private platforms. Um, and yet there's something I think most people would agree like practical about the idea that 
whether it's Twitter or, or other platforms, uh, people are, for the most part, that's where they're at. And so if you want to reach them with information, to some extent, you have to use these these platforms at this point. And I don't think we've got that solved. Yeah. You mentioned something else a minute ago that kind of sparked an idea for me. You mentioned the uh, the carrier pigeons and the horse and, and the limitations that that provided. And it makes me think that as technology has advanced, we've certainly become a more connected globe. You know, the geopolitic, geopolitical landscape has has changed pretty drastically. But what is interesting to me in, in some ways is that as we've gotten more connected, it feels like an immune response has taken place for a lot of these countries where maybe too much cultural influence came in too quickly through the pipes. And rather than increase cooperation, it seems that a lot of countries are retracting. Is this something that you are seeing as well? Or am I just kind of making this up as a, a thing that's happening? You know, one of the uh, groups that I try to keep close tabs on is uh, the folks at Freedom House who put out the uh, Internet Freedom Report every year. And they look across the globe and they look at this question across the globe, really. Um, you know, how are states uh, permitting or uh, re restricting free expression? Um, you know, what are the types of surveillance uh, mechanisms that states are employing against their citizens? Um, how is technology affecting the ability of individuals to express themselves, organize, uh, et cetera? And unfortunately, when you look at that question from a sort of methodo methodologically sound uh, place, which Freedom House does, every year things are getting worse, right? Um, every year, uh, fewer people uh, are, are in, in a place where a free expression um, is, you know, well uh, preserved. Uh, every year, people are living in uh, more uh, circumstance where individuals may be arrested uh, or imprisoned for things that they say or do online. Um, every year, you know, the surveillance apparatus grows uh, in large parts of the world. And I, you know, this is one of my, again, key concerns. Um, uh, you know, when we talk about tech and democracy, we can't escape the reality that democracy is backsliding um, across the globe every year, year on year. Um, this has been true now for um, a decade or almost two decades, depending on which measure you look at. So, you know, um, back to that question about optimism versus constraint or pessimism, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, things are not moving in the right direction <laughs> on this. And um, that's one of the things I think we have to get hold of. We have to figure out how to create a pro-democratic tech movement, um, you know, technologies, platforms, uh, ideas, tech policy regulations that are pro-democratic. This is obviously a, a bold question that if you could answer correctly, you would get the Nobel Prize for, but... <laughs> Is there anything that you think could stop that backslide? Is there is there maybe like a, a straw for the camel's back, so to speak, that could, if we could just maybe get this one thing tweaked in the right way, we might start going in a better direction? I do think that the United States has to figure out how to incentivize its technology firms in a way that produces better democratic outcomes. Uh, if we're to be hopeful that, you know, similar gains can be made uh, elsewhere in the world. Now, the EU has, to some extent, you know, leapfrogged us in terms of uh, innovative tech regulation. A lot of folks listening to this probably say, 
well, actually, no, they're far too paternal and, you know, they're, they're killing innovation, et cetera. I don't tend to think that, um, you know, I read their documents. I look at the amount of diligence and that goes into the, the thinking around their legislation, um, the amount of uh, kind of expert consideration and consultation, um, the, the care that they, they put into things like the Digital Services Act. And will there be unintended consequences? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, in a functioning legislative system, if there are unintended consequences that you regard as negative or counter to what you set out to do with a particular law or regulation, you can reverse it or you can alter it or you can update it. But, you know, where we're at in the United States, unfortunately, is everybody kind of has this idea that if we pass anything, we'll have to live with it for 40 years. So we might as well not because we have no idea what will go wrong. Yeah. Do, do you think those who would uh, claim that is too paternalistic and, and that government needs to stay out of everything basically are, are kind of being naive in terms of the, the scope and scale of what is happening here? Because I think, you know, I always love bringing things back to an evolutionary environment. And I, I think we were probably meant to be in groups of about 150 people as humans. And now we have countries of hundreds of millions or billions. Like it feels like to say that government shouldn't be involved in that in some way, that you're not going to have issues that government needs to step in and handle is, I don't know, again, I, I think maybe kind of naive. You know, um, a paper uh, that I will uh, share with you after we talk um, that I think about a lot is one by a friend of mine, a guy called uh, Joe Bach Coleman, who's now at Columbia, uh, formerly at, at the University of Washington. Um, along with, uh, I think, about two dozen other authors from a variety of disciplines. Um, and the paper's called The Stewardship of Global Collective Behavior. Um, and it's this sort of essentially kind of argument uh, that essentially what you say is true, right? That there's something kind of fundamental going on here, that we're fiddling with the species in a way that we never have, with digital media and communications technologies with social media. Um, and there's a gap in our knowledge, right, about how these technologies will affect our ability to progress as a species, whether that is uh, our ability to, you know, produce new information, disseminate that information, or how our democracies function, um, how we respond to crises like pandemics and the environmental uh, crisis that we're going to increasingly uh, find is is perhaps the most important crisis that the species will face. Um, and there's this sort of question about like, how do we get to a point where we can steward our collective behavior, steward our social systems in the direction that results in, you know, uh, good outcomes for the species. And, you know, that, that seems to me to be the open question at this point. Yeah. Um, and does government have a role to play in that? Absolutely. Uh, what form of government? Uh, what What is that role? What should it be? Um, that's the, the open question. And listen, people on both sides of the argument have really legitimate arguments. You know, some people are rightly concerned about too much government and authoritarian outcomes, uh, et cetera. Um, others are concerned about too little government, right? And um, capitalism run amok and big tech platforms that are unconstrained by state power. And 
you know, both have legitimate grievances. And unfortunately, we're going to have to find some balance. You know, I'm wondering if that political polarization leading to a stalemate that we talked about at the national level is going to impact that steward stewardship at the global level, because I can't help but wonder, are we going to get into an East first West type dynamic here, you know, with China and, and its approach to technology, which is kind of like run full steam ahead, do some experimentation and social things that maybe the Western world doesn't agree with. And the West has its own individualistic approach. Do you, do you feel like we're going to maybe get in a similar bottleneck there where that stewardship is really hard to, to bring forward? So, uh, you know, when we talk about China, uh, this is one of those areas where I want to be very careful to not overstate uh, what I do and do not know. Um, I've been to China. Uh, mm-hmm. Once in my life, I have uh, visited two cities in China. Um, I have, you know, of course, read and, and studied aspects of uh, um, Chinese politics and, and culture, but I do not in any way consider myself an expert. Um, but let me just go out on a limb and say, I think one of the interesting things that's going on, um, at least when you do zoom back, perhaps to the moon and look down, is China, uh, on some level, is far more restrictive in terms of what it is allowing its tech firms to do um, in a domestic context. Uh, And it's very interesting, you know, uh, they've got, you know, uh, certainly more uh, rigid uh, privacy uh, concern, um, rules about the amount of time that people can spend with certain applications, uh, rules against things like uh, generative AI, deep fakes, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, a much heavier hand when it comes to uh, censorship and monitoring of uh, public discourse on uh, social media. Um, whereas in the U.S., um, you know, we have much more laissez-faire uh, attitude on all these things, and yet we're permitting companies uh, to do things that, you know, are truly worrisome, um, collecting massive amounts of information, developing technologies and tools that uh, may well destabilize the information ecosystem and uh, if they run amok. And, you know, there's a real question here about which direction is the right one. And um, I I personally believe that, you know, free expression and uh, liberty and the the sorts of things that we value uh, in, in democracies is the better way to go and will result in ultimately uh, a species that thrives uh, more so than the the Chinese model. Um, And yet I do think we're going to see attempts to kind of challenge that idea or challenge, you know, my certainty on that over um, the next decades as we face increasingly massive problems that authoritarianism may well produce more I guess, I don't know if the word is urgent uh, or more immediate answers to. Now, those answers may not be the right ones. Look at COVID. Um, The Chinese attempt to control COVID for a couple of years looked extraordinary, looked like a world-beating, you know, success. Um, But then eventually the kind of, you know, I guess hubris of that approach um, ended up kind of falling apart, right? Um, And so, you know, it may be that in some cases that 
uh, apparent kind of success is not real um, and that ultimately be revealed to be a weaker model. Uh, but there may be other things where it is more successful. I keep thinking about environmental crises where maybe a government has to say to a whole group of people or an entire city, you know, it's time to move away from the coast or we need to completely change the form of energy that you're using. Um, whereas in the United States, it may take us years, decades to come to those conclusions. Um, and we may carry on, you know, in certain directions uh, without the ability to, to take action because our democracy is slow and fiddles its way towards things. Um, you know, we may look at those situations and say, oh, you know, Maybe there's some benefit in this authoritarian approach, um, but I don't know. I, I kind of hold out hope that no matter what, at the end of the day, um, for the most part, democracy will prove to be even a better system for managing information and crises. Do you see a situation where that impetus, that that pressure that comes from maybe issues like the environmental uh, crisis that we're facing or any other issue is going to cause us to actually upgrade? Like, will we change the system in some way, our governments, at least in like America? Do you foresee that being a case where it will become something faster and more streamlined than kind of the 40-year turnaround that you're you're alluding to? I think that depends on the people to some extent. Um, you know, in the United States, clearly things aren't going terribly well. Um from a political point of view, you know, we've got a lot of uh, problems and a lot of discord and our legislative process um, doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, terribly productive. Um, and a lot of people at, at different levels and from different political perspectives are concerned that there are some fundamental aspects of the system that are broken. And I do think that, you know, they could be right um, and for different reasons, right? Um, at some point, people may demand some more substantial change, right? Could you imagine a constitutional Congress uh, where we might address some of these things? Could you imagine major reforms to the way that the Senate operates or uh, an expansion of the court or an expansion of Congress itself or some rebalancing of power between the branches of government or uh, you know, some new constitutional order altogether? It's possible that within the next uh, few decades, we'll see that here. Um, my hope is that somehow we can arrive at that without bloodshed. Um, but the reality is that most of the time, that's not how it goes. Yeah. How do you think economics plays into this? We haven't really touched on that too much. Um, maybe I'll kind of leave it open and broad as a starting point. Like what, what is the role of the economy in this relationship? Again, this is a, such a big question, right? Um, I, I, I think that economic inequality um, the, the kind of hyper-capitalism that we're observing at the moment uh, in much of the West and certainly in the United States, um, the degree to which the economy appears to be uh, really kind of fracturing into, um, even in, in places like the United States, into, into just uh, in, increasingly looking like a kind of caste system. Um, you know, I had this thing the other day, this, just to kind of illustrate this, I um, there's a spot in Brooklyn that I pass sometimes where a lot of the delivery drivers have found that they can park. 
And for them, it's a good spot. It's right between a bunch of things that they service, like restaurants that they pick up deliveries from, grocery stores, et cetera. So these are your DoorDash delivery workers and food delivery workers, et cetera, often, you know, with these cheap e-bikes. And it's hard to, to look at this, this kind of scenario, you know, these individuals were, who in New York we know have had to organize just to get the right to use the bathroom uh, in the businesses that they serve. Um, it's hard to look at their experience and look at their, their own woes that they express um, as they, they try to organize for uh, more recognition and, and the rest, and not to look at it as a kind of caste type, type scenario. Um, there's been a lot of great research and writing about uh, individuals who are now kind of suborned to algorithms or managed by algorithms managed on these platforms and then these various precarious work situations and very precarious uh, income and, you know, employment situations. And I don't know, all of that seems badly out of whack to me. And at some point um, will need to be addressed. And the workers can only work within the system. Of course, um, if the system decides to work with them, uh, and in fact, if, if they don't, you know, um, then we can we can worry about more uh, populist resentment and anger and, and we'll, we'll see what that results in. Yeah. Well, you know, there were attempts to maybe upend that uh, caste system in some ways with things like cryptocurrency and whatnot. But I feel like it also became its own kind of caste system. And, and now we're entering a, a phase that it seems like crypto is struggling uh, pretty dramatically, I would say. But maybe there's still room for, for, you know, digital solutions to this. Do you see kind of a cryptocurrency solution or maybe something like a basic income, maybe something that's a digital basic income that is going to be needed or that could help us navigate these waters? Um, I'm not uh, an expert on, on crypto or, or blockchain uh, mm -hmm. either. But um, I would regard myself as an armchair skeptic um, that cryptocurrency is the answer to any of these fundamental problems, either political or economic. Um, I realize there are a lot of folks who are invested in that idea um, and who, you know, in their ventures believe that that's what they're doing, that they're solving for uh, large political uh, questions and some of them are, you know, leftist utopians, and some of them are are libertarian idealists, um, and some of the folks are right in the middle and just want to do practical stuff. Um, but I think the jury's still very much out on whether cryptocurrency is part of the problem uh, or part of the solution. Um, so we'll just have to see. And I think in the meantime, we've been given over the last couple of years ample evidence that we should remain exceedingly skeptical. Uh, and then it is perfectly appropriate for people like me to maintain an adversarial point of view um, on whether this is the particular path or particular set of technologies that that may ultimately lead us uh, to, you know, utopia. Yeah. Um, when it comes to um, things like UBI, I mean, ag uh, again, like, you know, um, you could have, I'm sure, much more expert economists come on and talk about these things. I sometimes worry, and this is maybe not the most informed point of view, but I sometimes worry that UBI is a kind of 
sort of get out of jail free card for people who are concerned that, you know, AI is going to disrupt too many people's jobs and, you know, oh, so we'll make sure we look after them well enough that they don't starve. Uh, but we're not going to do anything else, right, to, yeah. to fix the economy or society uh, to their advantage. We're, we're just going to give them a bit of cash and hope things work out and mostly carry on as we have. Um, we're not going to constrain companies or, you know, we're not going to um, put in place new regulation or we're not going to increase um, uh, the power of labor or we're not going to pay people more um, for their services. Rather, we're just going to kind of throw them a bone and let AI get on with itself. Yeah. I'm going to take a bit of a jump here because I want to touch, I want to get your thoughts on this before we wrap up. But what, what about data and privacy? You alluded to it a bit earlier, I think, when we were talking about China. But what do you think about the current paradigm? You know, the the Facebook data that's being collected, you know, TikTok data that's being collected, how we're um, basically letting all of the information about us be sold pretty much without thinking too much about it. Like, what do you, what do you think about this, this paradigm? You know, I was at an event um, last week or maybe two weeks ago now uh, that was talking about the intersection of law and extended reality. So looking at XR, AR, VR, uh, those types of technologies and thinking about the implications uh, in the law. And there was a good amount of conversation about privacy um, and the fact that, you know, forget social media, uh, you know, when it comes to XR and virtual environments and the types of devices that we imagine people are going to have on their heads and other parts of their bodies to enable them to experience those types of immersive environments. You know, the amount of data that's going to come off us um, is just extraordinary, it's sort of radiating biometric information and, you know, um, other signals from our nervous system and, you know, emotional uh, recognition, that kind of thing. Um, and just a lot of questions about how that data will be used, where it will be stored, uh, how it will be minimized or destroyed um, or stay on the device or leave the device or, you know, et cetera. And I remember at the meeting, there was this uh, woman, Susan Aronson, um, you might've had on your podcast in the past who said, you know, the future of tech is not about any particular technology. It's about how are we going to pool and utilize data uh, in a way that, you know, creates value for the species and, and doesn't, uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm probably putting slightly words in her mouth, but, but doesn't, um, you know, give too much power to big tech corporations uh, doesn't end up hurting people's uh, interests, doesn't end up uh, hurting democracy, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we've got to think about that, right? Because there's incredible power that will come off of exactly the type of data collection that I just mentioned, all kinds of um, diagnostics and, you know, um, assistive technologies and techniques and learning and education applications and various other forms of uh value that will be created by the collection and expression of that data. And yet, on the other hand, um, do we want all of that information, uh, you know, in Elon Musk's hands where right. uh, he may choose to hand it out however he might see fit? Um, do we want Mark Zuckerberg uh, sitting on top of that trove 
uh, with no rules in place, really. Um, that seems seems crazy to me. You know, um, we've got to get this under control. Um, or I suspect that, you know, as the technology advances, as AI advances, as various other communications technologies advance, we're going to introduce a, a true threat, you know, not just to democracy, but to humanity. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's natural, I think, as, as humans to uh, engage our negativity bias and, and look at the things worth being concerned about. Uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, you know, offer up an opportunity to maybe have you discuss some of the wins, you know, some of the things that you think we've done well, some of the ways we've met that balance that I think uh, you quoted there from Susan Aronson, I think you said her name was. Mm. Are there ways we have been able to benefit humanity without giving too much power to these corporations and institutions that you can point to and say, this was a thing we did well, this was a, this was a correct implementation of technology and democracy? It is undeniable that social media has given voice to people who did not have voice in the media and information ecosystem of just 20 years ago or 10 years ago, that there are movements, there are concerns, there are expressions of, um, you know, problems and uh, hopes and dreams and various other uh, forms of expression that we would not know about uh, or would not, I suppose, um, you know, have such ready access to or hears in such volume were it not for social media. And I do think like 10, 20, 30 years from now, hopefully we'll have figured out how to have taken advantage of that extraordinary thing, this, this ability to empower individual voices to uh, rise up and to be heard um, in a way that improves our ability to arrive at a more just, a more plural, a more successful uh, and, you know, economically and environmentally sustainable way. Um, we're just not there yet. And um, I do think it eventually we'll look back and regard um, digital communications, technology, social media as uh, a kind of miracle. Um, but we're going to have to figure out exactly that thing that you you stated earlier, which is, you know, how does it challenge some of these innate evolutionary mechanisms uh, that we're fiddling with and we don't really understand. Yeah, absolutely. Justin, uh, I got one last question for you, maybe the hardest of all for a lot of people. Is there anything at all that you would like to, to leave people with? Any closing remarks, any closing thoughts, anything you would just like to put out to the people to tell them about what you're working on, anything at all? Well, I certainly um, would encourage folks to check out techpolicy.press um, and sign up for the newsletter. Um, we have a podcast and uh, we'll be running some events in 2023. Uh, appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about it here. And I, mean, I guess one of the things that I, I'm about to start the semester again, you know, teaching again this course on tech, media, and democracy. Um, and it, I'm always looking for like, what have we learned in the last year? You know, what what is a sort of new consensus or um, what is the sort of new uh, baseline from which to talk about these things? And I do think we've made an enormous amount of progress uh, in just the last half decade or decade or so um, at understanding the relationship between tech and social cohesion, the relationship between tech and democracy. And um, I just encourage anybody that might be listening to this that works in tech to think about 
how can I be part of a pro-democratic movement um, in my work? You know, that's not going to be easy for everybody. If you, you know, if you're, um, you know, QA and code or something like that, and, uh, you know, you've got uh, just a, a time constraint on you and you've got to get that work done uh, every day, you know, maybe you can't look up to think about um, this broader question. But over the course of your career, I suspect there are opportunities for you um, in the conversations you have, in the places where you volunteer or donate your time um, or expertise in the mentoring you do for people who are coming from behind um, to think about these questions. And they're, they're not just ethical questions, but they're also ethical questions. Um, how, how can I be part of creating a technology ecosystem and a, a kind of fabric of, of technology in our lives that uh, supports that that democratic that that pluralist that uh, you know more equitable and just society that we'd like to see. Yeah, I love that. Well said, Justin. Again, man, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, sir.